Good morning, and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Today is the first Sunday in Advent, and Advent is always a very rich time at St. Paul's. Of course, it will be very, very different this year, but starting next Sunday, there will be some in-person gatherings. And if you would like to know more about that, how you can get scheduled for the commun communion service that will be held here, you can go to the St. Paul's website, stpaulshouston.org. If you don't get it, you can sign up for the Chimes, which is the weekly newsletter from St. Paul's. And if you don't get the weekly, bi-weekly, is it bi-weekly or twice-weekly? What's the difference? They're the same, and bi-weekly also means every other week. That's crazy. It's confusing. English language is confusing. It is. It is. So you can also get the emails that go out from Ordinary Life every Tuesday and Friday morning. And you can subscribe to our podcast. You can. We have a podcast called In Between, and it's updated on our website every week on Thursdays. And you can also find it where you download iTunes podcasts. Sorry, I couldn't get that sentence out. And um, listen to it. We, we have a good time. We do. We do have a good time. <laughs> yeah. So um, when is the deadline for donation requests? December 7th. So that is in one week. Um, we are accepting requests for donations. Each year, as you guys know, we give the money that you all have so generously contributed during the course of the year to different nonprofits who are working to empower the poor and underserved in and around Houston. You can make donations on our website by going to the donate button and then putting ordinary life in the memo. And if you have a request for a donation, that form is updated and it's on our website. It also comes through the weekly email and you can also contact me if you still need it. But December 7th is the deadline and then we'll distribute funds. Have you any idea how much money we have? Uh, I'm looking at John, and he's shaking his head. <laughs> not, not exactly, but we have a good chunk to give away this year, okay. which is nice. Yeah. And, and, and I hope that those donations can reflect our ongoing concern for people who've been affected by COVID. Yes, yes. I think we, we um, requested that we would get to focus on COVID relief, um, racial justice, and uh, rent relief type of programs that are helping people who acute who are acutely suffering during this time, but again, any any request is welcome. Okay. As long as it's a nonprofit. <laughs> okay, and um, we, I want to thank, we want to thank the people whose consistent faithfulness behind the scenes, recording this and broadcasting it um, count so much. So I thank Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, Olivia Watson, William Budge, every Sunday for their faithfulness. And I wanna let you know that no matter who you are and no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Pajama people, all we are right now. Mm -hmm. I even have we some- We get dressed on Sunday. We, we do get dressed, but <laughs> I have some uh, pajamas yes. that say pajama person. Yes. I'm a pajama person too. Yeah. I, yeah. I think you should wear those one Sunday. I will wear that some okay. Sunday. This, um, this Advent season. Okay. Tell me when and I'll wear my pajamas that are, never mind. <laughs> okay. I'll wear some pajamas. <laughs> 
So as you know, we have been going through, um, we spent two months doing the Four uh, Noble Truths and uh, three months actually doing the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path of Buddhism using uh, the teachings of Buddha and Jesus to help guide us through this time of pandemic and the unveiling as never before of systemic racial injustice in this country. <clears throat> and so we then switched to the Beatitudes and have made decision to keep going through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, that's what you'll be hearing today. During the, the time that I've been teaching Ordinary Life, which is over 20 years now, 22 years, I have made two fairly abrupt shifts in the emphasis of the content of these classes. And these shifts, I think, highlight two of the things we need to keep ever in front of us in doing our spiritual work. One is the restrictiveness of ignorance and stupidity in our culture. And the other is the terrifyingly exciting knowledge and wisdom that comes to us from evolutionary cosmology. One of the first shifts occurred about two years into teaching, uh, and that came from an event that is seared into the minds and memories of all of us, 9-11 and its aftermath. When 9-11 occurred, I started going after fundamentalists, particularly Christian fundamentalists, as the danger, dangerous evil that it is, and made my commitment to continue um, contributing to both religious and spiritual literacy. They're not the same. And I'm going to continue that. You'll even see that reflected in what Holly and I are going to do today. Now, you might ask, how, can it, how, how is it possible for someone to fall into the clutches of fundamentalism, to be, be victimized by a fundamentalist movement? Well, here's one way of thinking about it. Our country right now is divided. We live in two Americas. One America, and it is becoming more and more of a minority as every day passes, functions in what I would call the literate world. The people in this America can cope with complexity and they have the intellectual tools to separate illusion from truth. The other America, which is a growing majority, exists in a non-reality-based belief system. And because it separates itself from a literate culture, it can't distinguish between lies and truth. It's informed by simplistic, childish narratives, cliches. You mentioned non-duality um, or evolutionary cosmology, and it throws these folks into confusion. Chris Hedges who, in addition to being a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, is also a Presbyterian minister, put me onto this insight in his writing a couple of years ago. He claims, and I'm quoting now, this divide more than race, class, or gender, more than rural or urban, believer or non-believer, red state or blue state, has split the country into radically distinct bridgeable and antagonistic entities. So I'll give you some of the alarming statistics I got from Chris Hedges. 
There are over 42 million American adults, 20% of them who hold high school diplomas, who cannot read. An additional 50 million read at a fourth or fifth grade level. Nearly a third of a nation's population is illiterate or barely literate. And this is the alarming part. Their numbers are growing by an estimated 2 million people a year. More and more of our population live in an image and soundbite based world. A third of high school graduates, along with 42% of college graduates, never read a book after they finish school. Hmm. I think we recommend a new book or two almost every week. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I read a lot. You do. I read a lot. Yeah. Um, 80% of families in the United States did not buy a book last year, according to Hedges. Now, the ramifications of this are enormous. Both the media and politicians cater to an audience that is either entrapped in shallowness or amnesia. It's all about style. It's all about story. So the other sharp turn I took was after my encounter with Ilya Delio. This is in September of 2014. Mm. The metaphor that I thought of while writing this about my experience of seeing Ilya for the first time was that of watching my, my favorite football team, my home football team, trailing by five points. And the opposing team is right down at the goal line, clearly about to score again, when one of our defensive linebackers intercepts a pass. I know they were foolish to pass in this <laughs> circumstance. Should have just run it in. <laughs> Caught the ball and ran over 100 yards for a touchdown. That's mm -hmm. how I felt hearing her. <clears throat> if you had asked me after I saw Ilya the first time, and we were sitting like on the second row, and she was up on stage, how tall she was, I would have said at least six feet. Like 10 feet tall. She was, yeah. oh, it was just so energizing to, to hear her. There's something in me that just went yes about hearing that. And I bet most people who have attended Ordinary Life for any period of time, read the online lessons or looked at the videos after the fact, can probably memorize the descriptors that I came away from that first encounter with her, because I used them so often, she described the energy field in which we live as expanding, creative, um, e evolving, and entangled. And that just was so helpful. These are, it's, I love that those are both spiritual words and science words. They're both, yes. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just, that's such a, Anyway. Well, the language of science has got to be the language of the new religion. Absolutely. New religious things. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is the text from Matthew that we're going to um, base this talk on. I'm going to have some more to say about this particular text <clears throat> from a religious literacy point of view in, uh, later. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. 
God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will have only trivialized yourself. But take it seriously, show the way for others, and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about emerging, about entering into the kingdom. As I said, I have more to say about this text uh, later. But suffice it to say that one of the interpretations of this passage, which is talking about fulfilling the law, is an ability to think for oneself, to draw independent conclusions, to express dissent when judgment and common sense indicate something is wrong, to be self-critical, to challenge authority, to understand historical facts, to separate truth from lies, to advocate for change, and to acknowledge that there are other views, different ways of being, that are morally and socially accepted, acceptable. <clears throat> of course, Jesus got executed for pushing for this agenda. Only those, and I want us to be among them, who are willing to take the truth into themselves can escape from the prison of superficiality. I think superficiality and just plain silliness is the religious sin of our time. This is why doing the work to grow up and why we continually recommend that Daramut Amurku's book on when, when the believer arrives is so important. We've got to live in a world as large and inclusive as Jesus saw and taught. So again, two things to keep in front of us as we seek to do this work. The restrictiveness of ignorance and stupidity in our culture and the terrifyingly exciting knowledge and wisdom coming to us from the world of evolutionary cosmology. To, to stay in depth, to stay in that space of, of, of wanting to know and expand and evolve and create um, and be entangled, it can feel lonely sometimes based on the statistics you just gave. If over half of us are not literate or not seeking. But I guess what I would say to that is there is a community there. There is a place to be held inside of this seeking. And I hope, I know you've created that community in this class. Um, so yeah, it's hard work, but I kind of want to zero in on these two lines. Um, the two that say, I'm going to pull it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. I too was blown away by Ilya Delio and at some point during her presentation in this room drew a little sketch of me or a person with their brain exploding because <laughs> there was so much coming in that was resonating. I think standing in that giant yes and also just like, where has this been my whole religious life? And really actually put me on a path. She's one of the three people who mentioned to me the school where I'm doing my PhD, 
put me on that path toward wanting to learn more about cosmology and spirituality. So when she caught this, our imagination, <laughs> with the grandeur of this universe, which is over 13 trillion galaxies and expanding at 72 kilometers per second, so that's roughly 3.3 million light years per second. Six billion other Earth-like planets that might exist, that probably exist. Nebula and black holes, which give birth to new stars and new galaxies, respectively. So I behold this panorama, and it's amazing to consider that we are even here at all. I rewatched the movie A Wrinkle in Times with my, ki with my kids the other day. We watched it last I'm night. I'm so glad you did. Um, I love that movie. It was made a couple of years ago, and when I was 10 years old as a fifth grader, I loved the book. I have really sweet memories of my fifth grade teacher reading that book out loud to us. And I read it now. I reread the book when the movie first came out, and now I'm reading the series that Madeline Langle wrote. She was kind of a cosmic, mystical genius. She um, read a lot of the research that was coming out in, in theoretical physics and quantum physics, reread uh, a lot of Einstein's work, and she put it into a children's story. There are three characters in the book, all women, who represent a trinity, Mrs. Who, Mrs. What's It, and Mrs. Witch. Mrs. Witch is kind of like God, played, of course, by Oprah which is fitting, <laughs> and she says to Meg, the little girl who's searching for her lost scientist father who tesserated through a wrinkle in time, do you know, do you realize how many events and choices that had to occur since the birth of the universe leading to the making of you just exactly as you are? It is amazing that we are here at all. In the formation of the universe, which is in itself a kind of love story, because it has to do with how things connected and came together, there had to be an exact right moment for everything to occur. If you look at this diagram, I don't expect you to be able to read all the small print, but just look at the visual of the movement from the Big Bang to the expansion of the universe um, to where we are today that created matter and solid planets like Earth and Mars and Venus. If you look at this diagram, stars could not exist until light waves cooled and broke apart. Matter could not form until dark energy sort of loosened its gills, became less constricted to make space for something more. In the dark era of the universe, which was just after the Big Bang, it was too constricted and too tight for anything like stars to appear. But that time, too, was necessary to generate enough heat, if you will, to kind of stay in that tight space so that further expansion could happen. At every moment, the temperature had to be just right for the next phase of evolution to occur. The lines were up to remind me that we need to kind of be in that tension with the very largest, the panorama, and the very smallest, the smallest creatures with the sky and the ground, with what is enormous and what is microscopic. We're microscopic in this universe. We need to be in tension with what is still evolving, not just in the grandiosity of what we see here, but also in us. There's an expanse in there too. Maybe now is just the exact right time to become time benders. That's kind of how I interpret Martin Luther King's uh, 
made famous this statement to bend the moral arc of time. To, uh, the moral arc of time is long, but it bends towards justice. So if we become time benders, we participate in imposing a little bit more love or justice or God's law on the world. God says, or Jesus says, God, I guess, <laughs> whoa, I'm being literal here. I will put it all together in a vast panorama. So I look at this and I think God's law is pushing out and pulling in at the same time. It exists even when we perceive nothing to be there. The tense in which this, verb is, or this verse is translated is interesting to me too. I will put it all together indicates it's still evolving and changing and becoming. So I want to say, if people can't see this overhead, they are also, will be on the website on Tuesday morning. Yeah. So you can go look. I think it's so interesting as I look at this that you don't see the words a few and billion together. I know, I know. <laughs> a few billion often. years, yeah. A yeah. few hundred million, a yeah. few billion years. Yeah. Well, the, the first few stages of the universe happen within minutes. That's what they think. But of course, the way that we measure time is very different than the way the universe measures time, than the way that God metaphorically measures time. Right. So time is a construct that we made up to sort of keep track of our lives. Well, one of the, one of the things about this that first got me uh, when I heard Ilya present something like this and, and um, you, you know, when she was here and she put her overheads on, they were, they were mind-boggling. <laughs> they were really mind-boggling. What she said that really got me was, you can't get your mind around you this. You can't. I mean, that we, can, we, start, we have a name for 14 billion years. What does that even mean? 14 billion years could be twice that length in, in universe time. Right. Right? So we have this way of measuring time that makes sense to us. So we are trying to fit the universe inside of the expanse of our minds. And we're also trying to figure out where we fit into this grand right. universe. Right? right? So yeah, we could, I, could, I could jam on this stuff for a long time. But we're part of this grand evolutionary story. And we too, like the universe, are evolving. As is, as Bill has pointed out so many times over the last few years, everything we ever thought we knew about God. So I have a few confessions to make. You're here, so I have a, I have a priest here. <laughs> I don't believe in a clockmaker God, nor in a preeminent God. Preeminence meaning that God came first and breathed life into the cosmos. I love it as a metaphor, as in the first words of the biblical text in Genesis 1. First this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see, Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above, above the watery abyss. God brooded and then breathed. I love the metaphor. Second, I don't believe in heaven or hell as a place, but as a condition or outcome of the choices we make. Third, I don't believe God has a specific will for me, for you. I know a lot of people disagree with that, and that's fine or that the universe has a specific intent with the role of the human as the final word. But I do believe we are meant to be here as much as anything else is meant to be here. And fourth, I don't believe in life everlasting as in the idea of heaven or where I go after death, but I do believe in the first law of thermodynamics, which says energy can neither be created nor destroyed. 
It can only be changed from one form to another. So in this way, everything lives on. I'll let you chew on that paradox for a bit. I do believe in imminence, or the breath of God being everywhere in everything. We live and move and have our beings in this universe. In my mind, this is like the image of the photons of the Big Bang, which are just now making their way back to us. We live and move and have our being in this space. God's law is, to me, the law of the universe. I believe spirit and matter are co-evolving, that we enact a measure of justice or injustice, construction or destruction upon the earth. We are so small and the universe is so big. It's hard to find our importance in this grand cosmic unfolding. From this verse, it's recognized that we are small. It is said, small but not trivial. What this to me is that God's law is that which is unseeable. So dark matter, that which we keep, we believe keeps the universe from flying apart. It keeps us held in space. The very core of our being or the true self, if you will, this is also what keeps us from flying apart. Love, we can't see it, but we know what it feels like. Mercy, we can't see it, but we, we, we excuse me, mercy, we can't see, but we know what it feels like. Justice, we don't fully have it, but if we did, we would know it because there wouldn't be cries of injustice. We can see actions that mimic love, mercy, and justice. We can find a thousand different ways to describe them, and not all of them look alike. When they are present, though, God's law is at work. I've, as you know, been reading a lot of MLK lately, or rereading. This is what he says about this powerful kind of love, which contains justice and mercy. One of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against it. So this idea of powerful love is the one I want to stay with today. It is to me when all else falls away, when the sky or the ground fall away, the only thing that matters. It is to me the essence of God's law. All the Beatitudes, all of the Eightfold Path prepares us not for salvation, for individual salvation, but to love better, which ultimately will be our salvation. We could spend a lifetime pondering love. Many poets and songwriters have and do, and they have, we still don't have enough love songs and love poems in this world to, innate, to really contain it. And it would still change, shape, evolve, and contain a certain kind of mystery. Love is the one thing I'm certain humans are capable of that might actually matter and make better this world. We must take that law absolutely seriously. So we're gonna go for a little bit to the school of love where God's law is rule. You know, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. where I first heard, I could be wrong about this, that he says that the, a, a way to understand 
the difference between the prevailing belief of American society and the teachings of Jesus is that in American society, we believe in the, the love of power. Mm-hmm. And in the teachings of Jesus, what you have is the power of love. The belief in the power of love. The belief love. in the power yeah, of love. Absolutely. Um, and, and for sure, he, you know, that was his whole movement that he helped to galvanize rested on that point. So he, this, and he was not the first one to think of it, obviously, because Jesus also did, and Buddha, you know, many, many, many spiritual teachers. Well, it was the core of the the heart of the what I call about the you know the evolution of right religion is that you you don't treat people like you would not yourself want to be treated. The heart of that is love. So I want to take a bit of an excursion now. I want to talk about the text. This is my attempt to do some contribution to religious literacy. Um, Theology is a Christian concept. And although you have in the Jewish religion people studying scripture, they don't so much talk about theology as much as Christians do, neither do, um, do, do Muslims. So theology is a Christian concept. And what it means, uh, the, the word comes from theos, which means God, and logos, which means word. So theology is words about God. And we, particularly since the Enlightenment, and some people would say since 313, but particularly since the Enlightenment, Christians have really been good about being in in our heads and doing theology in that way. Closely related to theology is a notion called revelation, which means a revealing about God, who God is, what God wants. And the belief that this revelation is contained in Scripture, the writings that we call Scripture. If you read this text today and you read that Jesus is quoted as saying, although Jesus didn't say the words in this text, that the words of the law and the prophets will not pass away. Some fundamentalist Christians take that to mean that this is a reference to the Bible. Couldn't be a reference to the Bible because the Bible was written then. All the great religions have a collection of sacred scriptures. For the Christians, this is the Bible. It's the Quran for Muslims, the Guru Gant Sahib for Sikhs, the Vedas and the Upanishads for the Hindus and so forth. The Upanishads are so amazing. Sorry, they're just really beautiful. The it's beautiful, yeah. beautiful stuff. Yeah. I think the closest that we have in the Christian in, in in the Bible are probably the the writings that are in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs mm. that are in in that collection. Mm-hmm. But they're they're beautiful and great personifications. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. So some religious people, I would count in these uh, Muslims conservative Orthodox Jews, fundamentalist Christians, believe that what they call their sacred writings were somehow divinely inspired 
Some people even believe that they were dictated by God to people who wrote them down and that they must never be tampered with, never modified, and never changed, perhaps never challenged. So the, the writing that we're looking at today comes from a book in the Christian collection called Matthew. And since it is the first book in the Christian collection, Many people mistakenly believe it was the first one that was written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most people, whether they ever went to church or not, can probably say that, that way of putting the Bible. So just so you will know, Jesus was executed sometime around the year 30. The first writings in the collection we refer to as the New Testament were not written until sometime in the 50s. And these were written by Paul, with 1 Thessalonians and Galatians being among the first written. It wasn't until sometime in the 70s, that's 40 years after the death of Jesus, that Mark was written. Now, I don't know how good you are at recalling things that <laughs> happened 40 years ago. Sometimes I can't remember what happened two or three weeks ago. Matthew, the one we're taking this text from today, was not written until the late 80s. That's 50 years after the execution of Jesus. Now, by the time Matthew had been written, the center of Judaism had moved to Galilee. And at this time, the followers of Jesus, who were Jewish, began to separate into two different religions. And there was hostility between the Christian who were Jews and the Christians who were not Jews. And it was about this time that the finalization of the Jewish canon was beginning to take place, creating the sections of the law, prophets, and writings. It's really important, I think, because the section that we're looking at today is making reference to the law and the prophets. So what you're seeing in this collection of words we're looking at today is not something from the mouth of Jesus. Rather, it is a reflection of the controversy that was going on among the early followers of Jesus about 50 years after his death over whether the Jewish laws were still binding on Christians or not. Matthew, or whoever wrote Matthew, believed that even the most trivial regulation must be observed. And Matthew is the one who gets the credit for leading so many people astray about the kingdom of God that Jesus referred to, although now I'm pretty convinced Jesus would not have used that particular way of saying it. Matthew was so Jewish in his orientation that he wouldn't use the word God. It's forbidden among Jews. So instead of using the word God, he inserted the word heaven. Kingdom of heaven was what Jesus was talking about. And thereby that planted the seed to think that what Jesus was talking about was something that happened out there, off there, and usually after you died. Hmm. Jesus himself had a much more relaxed view about the law as we shall see going forward. The law that mattered to Jesus, as Holly has said, was love. And you'll see that when we get to what 
Richard Rohr calls the transformative initiatives in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is quoted as saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, taking it even further. So the verse that we have taken to base the title of this time on today is one translated by Eugene Peterson this way. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all into a vast panorama. Now, if you look at this verse in the King James Version, it simply says, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And other translations use the word complete as well. What you see Peterson doing in this translation, and he's doing it, I think, in light of the overall teachings of Jesus, is that he's moving out in ever-increasing circles. Mm. This is the kind of theologizing we need, in my humble opinion, to be engaged in. Something that moves us beyond the current confines of doctrinal Christianity. We've come to a point in the evolution of religion, the Christian religion, where this is what we are called to. This is where we're called to take our stand, to theologize outside of what has been considered doctrinally appropriate. So if we were to confine ourselves just to the message of Jesus as contained in the Sermon on the Mount, taken as a whole, that would be enough to inform us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I can also say, in my humble opinion, that what passes as much of Christianity today is a negation of what you see in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what led Gandhi to say, I like your Jesus, but I do not like your Christians, for they are so unlike your Jesus. And I think it's times like we are in right now in the pandemic, which is getting worse, according to what I read in the papers this morning. It is in this time when we are being called to reckon with systemic racial injustice that reveal just where we are on the path of spiritual and religious maturity. Do I remember reading um, in my research for this that Matthew was a lawmaker? before sort of becoming a follower of Jesus. That seems to be the case. And so Matthew spoke to the rule. He wanted to appeal to that sort of like middle management, if you will. Well, and when you get to the end of Matthew, um, there's, a, there's kind of a cryptic statement in Matthew about somebody who brings out of his house old and new treasures. Mm -hmm. And it, some interpreters say that this is the scribe part of Matthew which is what he was, mm -hmm. a legalist, mm -hmm. bringing something new out. So but, he himself may have been undergoing a transformation in this process. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, when I studied this in, in the seminary, the professor of New Testament that I had had a wonderful m metaphor for how to understand the evolution of Scripture. Um, you know, we studied the Greek, which Jesus did not speak. And Greek, by the time, by the, time the Jewish, Christian movement had gotten into Galilee and began to be influenced by things that were coming from the Greco-Roman world, it was thought that it was this, the way to communicate was in the language of the realm, which is Greek. Mm -hmm. 
So the way that my professor described it to me is that you have a spring that has a source somewhere in the mountains and out of it comes this pure water. As the spring goes down the river, it gets sure. polluted and things get in it put there by other sources. So when the biblical scholars, starting with Strauss back in the 18th century, began really to look at the biblical documents, they were able to ascertain, mm -mm, as my professor said about this particular passage, this is way down the creek. Mm -hmm. This is way down the <laughs> this creek. This is way down the creek yeah. because it's not something that Jesus would have said. So that's when it can be helpful, I think, to zoom out into the vast panorama, if you will, and say, what is the crux of what we are to know here or learn here? And it always comes back to love for me. I think we could spend the whole of our life in pursuit of love and it would be a worthy pursuit. Right. And that, and so what we, what do we use to fuel our pursuit of love? How do we understand it as it deepens and changes and evolves? And even if I read Diarmuid Omirku from earlier in his life to now, you see an evolution. You do. You see his reliance upon scripture and then his reliance upon self, knowing the self. And, and I think that one of the tenets of progressive Christianity has got to be this theoretically open canon. Yeah. Because... We know that scripture was put together by our parents going back many, 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 right. many generations. Right. And we have the same capacity that they have. Mm -hmm. It's not a closed book. That's what it means to be a living word. Yeah. And, and again, love is a living thing. Right. Um, and it takes us always beyond where we think we can go. Every time we lean into love, we grow. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't have boundaries or it doesn't have... Um, uh, good uh, structures around it, or, or it doesn't have justice or power, as Martin Luther King would have said, but it, that if love is undergirding all of our behaviors, again, it's a worthy pursuit. So I think we both read the Progressing Spirit uh, blog this week, and um, we're both influenced by it. I think we had to choose which one of us was going to get to talk about this. Well, we, we did that reading independently. Yeah, that was wonderful. I learned a new word this week. Um, anomie. It's the concept that was coined by Emile Durkheim in 1893. And it's the idea that there can be conditions in which the norms, values, and assumptions within a society are no longer in place, and the people feel a profoundly unmoored dis-ease, disease. This dis-ease about things tends to lead to a felt sense of alienation, estrangement, and uncertainty about pretty much everything. In many cases, it can lead people to feel devastated and even to self-harm and suicide. I don't have to go very far out on a limb to say that many of us are experiencing anomie in 2020. As Bill said, we have become a kind of anti-intellectual populist. Cornel West speaks to this all the time, who reacted to the tumult of the last 20 years, 9-11, two wars, an economic crisis, the first black president, by instating an anti-intellectual unabashed bigot as president. He's not the first unabashed bigot to be president. But where do we go from here? The ground is falling away, as the verse says. It's a place where a, a new president, however good his policies, won't entirely correct. The laws are good, but we haven't fulfilled them, so that fulfillment, in a sense, is up to us. 
We must participate in the reordering by getting right first with ourselves, so first inside and second with one another. When things feel disordered, we tend to rely on structure and rules. I know for sure the rules in my house are an attempt to like keep some structure about the cacophony of three rowdy, tumbling boys. We don't need the kind of rigid structure and rules that make us cling to tribal identities and further polarization. Rules are designed, again, to keep healthy, safe structures, but to allow freedom and expression and creativity within them. Rather, we need these rules to help us go further inward. Something, wait for it, like a daily spiritual practice, I said it, that will help us wrestle with ourselves a bit until we find who we truly are. We are all the angel, and we are all Jacob wrestling the angel. This is good struggle, and it is God's law to be in that struggle, attending to that which can be brought forth by a willingness to go inward and pay attention, while also trying to stay in our body, in the world, on the ground. This isn't light work, so what I mean by that is it's not light, it's heavy lifting, but it's also not just looking for what is right in the world or in ourselves. It also means engaging in shadow work or dark matter, if you will. This is maybe what it means for the stars to fall away. People won't trust us unless we know ourselves, including our darkness. Carl Jung once put it as, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own souls. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Light is not possible without darkness. That was true in universe formation too. It underwent a huge period of absolute darkness before stars, before photon waves came about to form stars. So this first begins to feel a bit like a math problem. When you take away the sky, and you take away the ground, what is left? It seems like there would be nothing. But we know now that there's no such thing as nothing, and nature abhors a vacuum. So let's try again. Sky minus ground equals God. One minus one equals one whole. When we strip away everything we think we are, all the ego bits and all the traumas, all the hurts and the judgments, the Botox and the designer shoes, what we do and how much money we make, we think that there's nothing left. But there's not nothing left. What's left is the self, or what the Hindus called the God self. And that is the most precious thing. Inside, we find this vast panorama. This is not just true of you, but of everyone. And it is there that we are required to stay and to imagine this expansion. Everyone has this preciousness inside. So within is not the only classroom. We go inside. It is necessary to go inside, to, to be in tension with the light and the dark with what is small and what is big. And that tension is beautiful. Take away everything that you think sustains you and holds you up, but also notice. Notice what's there, the sky, the earth, 
all of the people who have brought you into being up to this point, all the beings who have supported your existence, all the things in this proverbial kingdom that keep you alive. Outside, there is also a vast panorama. My oldest son's first conscious experience of getting out of the city was memorialized by a gasp, followed by, Mommy, look at all the stars. There are so many you can't see the sky. This is what Teilhard de Chardin calls having a cosmic sense, a necessity that if we are to raise our consciousness around our belonging in this universe, we need a sense of awe and wonder. And when we operate out of our most authentic selves, we are exactly in balance with the within, so what we find within and the without of our existence. We need our bodies. If, we, if our bodies were removed, we would not have an experience through which or a way through which to have these experiences. And our bodies keep our souls from flying apart, if you will. Our bodies are kind of like the in-between, so in between the vast panorama of what is out there and the vast panorama of what is in here. In the second book, in the Wrinkle in Time series, it's called A Wind in the Door. Meg is in this book too, she's in high school by now, and she asks this mysterious teacher who appears to her, where is your school? The teacher doesn't speak at first, but this is what he says. The teacher's name is Blajani. Blajani looked up at the sky, raised his arms, and made a wide, embracing gesture. The clouds had almost dispersed. Only a few rapidly flying streamers veiled the stars, which blazed, twist the fierce brilliance of the rapidly plummeting mercury. The teacher's sweeping motion indicated the entire sparkling stretch of the sky. And then he sat up and folded his arms across his chest and his strange and luminous eyes turned inwards so that he was not looking up at the stars nor at the children, but into some deep, dark place far within himself. And then further, he sat there moving in, in, deeper and deeper for a time out of time. And then the focus of his eyes returned to the children and he gave his radiant smile and answered the question, where is my school? Here, there, and everywhere. This school of love is hard. The laws are good, but they demand us to strip away our ego and our defensiveness. They require us to kind of soften to ourselves and to one another. Have you ever seen the stars like that? Um, not in the city, when I leave the city, for sure. In Maine, they're like this. Um, in West Texas, going camping in West Texas. In Colorado, in the mountains, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first time we rafted the Grand Canyon, when you're a mile down in the earth mm. and there's no ambient light, you know, there's not all this light pollution, it's breathtaking. And I was talking to somebody about that after we came back from our first rafting trip. And the guy that I said it to quoted by memory a passage by Rachel Carlson, who said that because this scene is so readily available, which it is not, you can't see this in the city. Yeah. There are many people who will go their entire lifetime without ever seeing it. Yeah, 
this that I just, I can like feel Caleb's words. Mommy, look at all the stars. There's not enough room for the sky. And that, I mean, they are always there. That's the thing is that we say, oh, there are no stars in our sky. There are always stars. They're always there. It's that we can't see beyond the light pollution. So are there any other movies in the series? Nope. That's it. Yeah. Be great if they made the whole, uh, Ava DuVernay is so brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, since the 1st of March, it has become cliche to say that we live in unprecedented times. Uh, I, I got uh, visited by this cartoon today, <laughs> yeah, this week. Just, That's funny. <laughs> stop saying everything is unprecedented. So as far as we know, when Adam and Eve walked out of the Garden of Eden, he turned to her and said, my dear, we live in unprecedented times. <laughs> but, um, and this is my rift on the, the kind of blog and progressive spirit that we both happen to read this week. We, we are unmoored in our society. We're alienated, we're estranged uh, from seemingly everything and everyone except those who are in our small tribe. Um, we've been influenced by a lot of things that Holly has mentioned to you, unjust wars, economic turmoil, a black man in the, in the White House. I've been privileged to see two interviews with Barack Obama this past week, one with Oprah and one with Stephen Colbert. Mm-hmm. If you can find them, uh, I really highly recommend them to you. Josh got his book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is he reading it? Is uh, he... I think he started it, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah I got it on the Audible, but I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't read it. But all of those things created this kind of perfect storm for um, the mood that we are in. And then we're hit with the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and mismanaged justice system. Um, If you have a population that is insufficiently educated, you have the atmosphere for people to be swayed by conspiracy theories, to regard mainstream media, on which the population has long relied for information for information to be labeled fake news. I can remember when Walter Cronkite was considered the most trusted man in America. Mm. And now I don't think you could say that about any news source. If the election returns are any indication, close to half the population in this uh, uh, country fall into the category that tacitly supports the kind of positions that are not good for our society. And many of these people have become convinced that what it means to be a Christian is someone who is opposed to abortion, homosexuality, same-sex unions, and universal health care. So that being the case, how are we to live? And my personal experience is the same as I experienced in the aftermath of 9-11. I can't seem to have a conversation with a fundamentalist. I have this aspiration to love, but that doesn't always translate into being able to talk. For sure. Remember, Uh, it's the pursuit of love that is a worthy (laughs) ambition. We will not figure it out in our lifetime. I don't believe that responding in kind is helpful. I don't think it's helpful to draw another line in the sand anywhere. 
But what I do want to suggest going forward in our following Jesus is that we dare do what he did. And what you see in the translation of Eugene Peterson of this passage, and that is to continue to increase the circle of our awareness and our concern and our inclusion. Uh, I am in no way suggesting that we stop being engaged in social justice, but I want to go back to what Holly was saying about love. We have to focus more on the power of love than the love of power. And, and, and some green social, green in the spiral dynamic way, some green people on this social dynamic can be just as mean as any other form of fundamentalist. They can be just as fundamentalist in their, in their positions. Um, Paul said in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. Did you notice in Peterson's translation that one of the phrases or words in it is right action? No. Mm -hmm. In the one for- in the, in the Eugene Peterson translation, one of the phrases is, is right action. So. Um, I did not notice yeah. it. It says, uh, unless you do far, oh, sorry, right living. If, unless you do so much better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. I didn't, I didn't mm -hmm. pay attention to mm -hmm. that. To right livelihood, I should say. Yeah. So, okay, all right. I know I nag you about this, mm -hmm. but... I would like, and First Sunday Advent is a good time to begin. A new year begins today um, in the Christian liturgical calendar. I want to ask you to pick up, if you haven't, or renew, if you have, a commitment to deepen your own daily spiritual practice. You've heard these words before. You are who you are in God, in sacred mystery, no more no less. Don't let that just exist as a few words in your head. Let them make the long trip down to your heart and let them reside there. You do indeed live and move and have your being inside the heart of sacred mystery. If we're going to make a difference in the world, we have to lift our hearts to this way of living we need to reflect a felt sense of authenticity and compassion that others can feel. This love needs to be the authentic truth about who we are. If we are to be seen as relevant to and for the world, for our loved ones, for the communities in which we live, for this church of which we are a part, we need to do this. And this means, as Holly said, engaging in doing our own shadow work. People are not going to believe us if they don't sense that we've done our own work and that we're living authentically out of a real connection to the sacred. Right now, I'm seeing at a deeper level than I have ever before. The truth is something I read by the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner when I was in seminary. The Christian of the future will be a, a mystic or will not exist at all. And in that blog that Holly and, and I read, there were two lines by um, Rumi that I want to leave you with today. Rumi said, you are not but a drop of the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Mm. I love that way of capturing that.
And he also wrote, I searched for God and found only myself. I searched for myself and found only God. You are the entire ocean in a drop. You are the unique manifestation of the sacred. Living these truths, we can make a difference because we will be living in God's vast panorama. Mm. That's my story and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Bill. No matter who you are, no matter where you go this week, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step and we will see you here next Sunday.